Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Kevin finished worshiping and now start a ne- another section of the service. This is a continuation of our worship. As we now go to God's word, we read God's word, we seek to understand it and we trust that the spirit will stir our hearts and transform our lives. And so because this is an act of worship, it's right that we begin with prayer once again. Let's bow our heads and pray to Almighty God. Father God in heaven, thank you for the last few days as we've been able to gaze once again on the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you Lord God that even as we have read from your word We have seen your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, clearly in it. This evening, would you show us him once again? Lord, also, because we recognize that this is a spiritual activity, would your Holy Spirit be working right now, renewing our minds, stirring our hearts, transforming our lives. That we, your people, might move from one degree of glory to the next as we are conformed toward the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior. These things we ask in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, friends, uh, I have certainly enjoyed Easter weekend together with you, starting on Thursday and Good Friday, uh, going into a sunrise service this morning, and then the morning service. We've been working over that period through a portion of the book of Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 2. I recognize that some at the evening service might not have been around for that whole ride, Um, And so I want to give us a little bit of context as we come to the last two verses for consideration in this series this evening. Um, We've been looking from Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 through to Philippians chapter 2 verse 11 this morning and then this evening just verse 12 and verse 13. I'm going to read from chapter 1 verse 27. I'm not going to ask you to stand this evening because as I'm reading through the text, I'd like to give you some insight into the ground that we've already covered and then I'd have you standing for just far too long and that might be a distraction in terms of understanding. So rather than we do that, uh, I appreciate that we are honoring God's word even as we read it. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, I trust that everyone's there in their own Bibles. Hear God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Maybe just to explain, this is where we've been starting off on uh, uh, last week Sunday, in actual fact. Last week Sunday morning, we preached uh, from chapter 1, verse 27, through to chapter 2, verse 1. 
And uh, as we covered that area, as we considered it, we realized that our, our lives, our Christian lives, are to look like something. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel looks like something when it is effectual in our lives. It looks like something. Just like good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit, so too the gospel message, if it has taken hold of your heart, looks like something. And so Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. But not just as an individual. He's speaking to a community. And so he goes on in verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Christian life is, is lived in unity, one with another in a local church, just like ours. The Philippians were in a local church. And, and Paul is saying here uh, that our Christian lives as individuals must look like something. But not only that, our Christian lives as a corporate entity, as a body of local believers at this place in this time needs to look like something. He goes on to tell us why. Because he says in verse 28, are not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul is saying that we need to contend for the gospel, and we need to contend against opponents. And the way that we contend against the opponents, uh, against those who are looking into the church, particularly in Philippi, is that we stand firm in one spirit, unified together. Our church unity testifies to an outside world. Actually, I can apply that right now, even in this congregation. Friends, if you look around, we look like a box of Smarties, <laughs> every color under the rainbow. Praise the Lord for that, because we are united, not because of the language that we speak. We are united, not because of the color that we are. We are united because we have a common cause, a common purpose, the person of Jesus Christ and his glory. And that's a testimony in South Africa. I mean, it truly is. In South Africa, that makes people stand up and take notice. What causes a church like this to be united? Friends, it's, it's not because we like the same music. It's not because we necessarily enjoy the same films. It's because we love Jesus Christ and we choose to love him together. Now, Paul is very concerned about spiritual unity. And so he spends a great deal of time in chapter two talking about spiritual unity. He starts with the motives of spiritual unity. He then goes on to the marks of spiritual unity and the means of spiritual unity. And finally, he ends with the model of spiritual unity. He begins with the motives of spiritual unity. Listen to chapter two, verse one. So that 
if there is any encouragement in Christ, it's a rhetorical statement, really, because there is lots of encouragement with Christ. Any comfort from love, there is lots of comfort from love. Any participation in the Spirit, there is lots of participation in the Spirit. Any affection and sympathy. What he is saying is, because of the encouragement we have in Christ, because of the comfort that we have from love, because of the participation that we have in the Spirit, because of the affection and the sympathy that we have experienced, friends, we are motivated to do something. The motives for spiritual unity. Secondly, he talks about the marks of spiritual unity. Again, there's four of them, and they're all in verse 2. He says this, complete my joy. Add more, one more drop of joy to my cup and it will overflow. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Bottom line is the the marks of spiritual unity are are oneness, are, are, are unity. And then he goes on to explain the means. And ultimately, the means are humility. He says in verse 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, not only to his own family, not only to his own finance, not only to his own uh, entertainment, but also to the interests of others. He's spoken about the motives of spiritual unity, the marks of spiritual unity, the means of spiritual unity. And now from verse 5 through to 11, he talks about the model of spiritual unity. And again, it is a picture of humility. And he pictures Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humility of Jesus Christ is staggering. Equality with God. Did not consider that something to be grasped. Emptied himself, veiled himself, even for a moment. Therefore, Paul goes on to say, and now he's taken Jesus right from lofty heights in heaven above to death on a cruel cross in order to demonstrate his humility that it might be a model for us. He he changes gears and he shifts direction. And what was a trajectory down now becomes a trajectory up. He says in verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What's he talking about there? 
Well, he's taken Jesus from lofty heights, even down to the depths of a death on a cruel cross. And now he's saying that in response to his humility, God has exalted Jesus. He's given him a name, an exalted name. And our response to this, brothers and sisters, is to submit to Jesus Christ, to confess him as Lord. He's speaking about the lordship of Jesus Christ over everything. Now, here's the thing about the lordship of Christ. You don't make Jesus Lord of your life. He already is Lord of all. But friends, we need to live lives which reflect the lordship of Jesus in our lives. Because the gospel is at stake. Back to chapter 1, verse 27. This isn't just about corporate identity and unity. This is also about our lives reflecting the gospel message which has taken hold of us. And so now Paul draws his thoughts all the way back to chapter 1 verse 27 when he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And he lays out, how can we do that? How can we live our lives in the light of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Well, that brings us to the text that we're going to be looking at tonight. And now I am going to ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Would you please stand as I read just the two verses that we're looking at? Friends, hear the Word of God read from Philippians chapter 2, beginning at the 12th verse. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. May God add richly to the reading of his word. Amen. Please be seated. Two points tonight. The first point comes from the 12th verse. The second point comes from the 13th verse. The first point is this. What is, and it's a question, what is your role in sanctification? What is your role in sanctification? Let me just explain to you what I mean by sanctification, just so that we have that clearly in our minds. Uh, the idea of sanctification is to be set apart. It's to be made holy. What is our role as individuals, as Christians, those who have heard the gospel message that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose from the grave, those who have heard the call to repent, to turn away from our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, what is our role in our sanctification, in being made Christ-like? going from one degree of glory to the next. This is the subject matter of verse 12. And the text reads, just as you have always obeyed. Sanctification is about obedience. Friends, this is very important. The Christian life is a call to submission to Christ and his word. 
Repentance is part of that gospel proclamation, right? The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose from the grave. The call on our life then is to repent, to to turn from our love for the world and and to change directions and put our cost, our affections, and our love on the person of Jesus Christ. It's about changing direction. A few years ago, I don't think I've told this story. If I have, I might be in trouble. (laughs) Can't tell the same story too many times, especially this one because it's about my wife. A few years ago, we were on the road to Port Elizabeth. We left Johannesburg and we were traveling through the night. I got really, really tired around 10 o'clock at Bloemfontein area. I pulled over to the side of the road and I switched positions with Liesl. Liesl got into the driver's seat, I got into the passenger seat, and I gave her instruction because my intention was to sleep. Honey, when you get to the Grafrenet turnoff, you must take a left. We need to get to Port Elizabeth, right? If you get to the Craddock turnoff, and I can't remember if Craddock is before or after Grafrenet, you need to take a left, whichever comes first. But if you miss the one, you can always take the other, but you must go left. We need to get to the coast, to the Eastern Cape. Well, I fell asleep. Time went by. All of a sudden, I woke up, you know, like grabbing the steering wheel, thinking I was driving. And then as the world started to come into focus, I realized I didn't recognize the kind of uh, mountain and valley and bush that was around us. It was very late at night, one, two o'clock. But I've traveled that road so many times, I kind of know what the vegetation looks like. I looked around and We were on a road that didn't look familiar to me. I said, Liesl, what road are we on? She said, we're on the N1. Liesl, what time is it? It's about one o'clock or two o'clock. Liesl, have you seen a signpost for Craddock yet? I think I saw that. (laughs) Something to that effect. I can't remember the details of the conversation (laughs) right now. Liesl can uh, can correct me afterwards. Liesl, did you see the signpost for Graf Renet? I think I saw that a few hours ago, maybe 12 o'clock or there's about. Honey, we're getting terribly close to Cape Town. We've been driving in the wrong direction. If we want to get to PE, something needs to change. We had a couple of words. She pulled over. <laughs> I got out and she got out and she got into the passenger seat and I got into the driver's seat. And what needed to happen at that moment in time? Well, we needed to change direction, right? We'd been driving in completely the wrong direction for an hour or two. We needed to turn 180 degrees and start driving in the correct direction in order to take the correct off-ramp. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning from our love for the world and from our love for the things of the world and turning to the person of Jesus Christ, casting our affection and our love upon him, acknowledging him as our Savior and our Lord. To repent is to submit to him, to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul has been speaking about in the text immediately before this text. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
the lordship of Jesus Christ in the life of a repentant sinner. Friends, a true profession of faith will always be backed up by evidence of faith. Evidence is the fruit on the tree. A true profession of faith is the root of the tree. If someone is following Jesus, he or she will obey his instructions. And behavior is an important test of our faith. Obedience is evidence that one's faith is genuine. If a person remains unwilling to obey Christ, he provides evidence that his faith is in name only. A person may claim Jesus as Savior and pretend to obey for a while, but if there is no heart change, his true nature will eventually manifest itself. He has a warning to all of you who are professing Christians this evening who call on the name of Christ with lips and yet deny him with your life. A person who is living in willful, unrepentant sin has obviously not chosen to follow Christ because Christ calls us out of sin and calls us into righteousness. Paul says, just as you have always obeyed. He then goes on to say, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Basically, he's saying, remember who you are, remember where you are, remember what you are. Uh, Remember my parents dropping me off um, at people's homes when I was a kid. Um, and, and giving me those final instructions before they went out on a date. Remember, you're a Penrith. Basically, what they were saying was, remember who you are and where you are and what you are. And if you step out of line, I'm coming back. <laughs> Friends, Paul says, you have always obeyed. So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, and then he goes on to say, work out your own salvation. Work out, produce, cause to happen through continuous, strained, sustained effort. Work out your own salvation. What does that mean? Does that mean that you save yourself? When we read the word salvation in the New Testament, it comes to us in in different ways. Sometimes salvation is talking about a past tense salvation. Sometimes it is talking about a future tense salvation. Sometimes salvation is talking about a present tense salvation. Let me explain. Salvation in the past. God saved us. Amen? (laughs) Hallelujah. He granted us justification. He declared that we were out sin as a once and for all act, a a positional sanctification before God that happens the moment we are saved. That's a past tense salvation. Now, Paul isn't talking about a past tense salvation because he says, work out your own salvation. Now, this is an imperative, uh, and it is a, a present tense uh, verb. 
So it's not talking about something which happened in the past. You can't save yourself. Only Jesus Christ can save you. It's also not talking about a future tense salvation, something that will happen in the future. What do I mean by future tense salvation? There will come a day when God will truly save us perfectly, give us glorified bodies, a permanent salvation, where forever and ever and ever in heaven's glories above, we will praise Jesus Christ and God in unhindered perfection. It's a glorification. That's not the salvation which Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about is something which happens in the present. God guides us toward maturity from one degree of glory to the next. This is a practical salvation. This is a progressive salvation. This is a salvation that when you start your Christian faith as a young Christian, uh, you are uh, saved in a certain way. And after 10 years, God has grown you and developed you. Developed the fruit of the Spirit in your life, like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Given you mechanisms to fight sin as it comes to you, to fight temptation as it comes to you. This is the maturing salvation that each and every one of us must progress in the whole way through our lives. This is what Paul is saying when he says, you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now work out your own salvation, this progressive salvation. Because, friends, the gospel is to be lived out. It is to be worked out. Your life needs to shout out. Your actions need to speak out to a watching world. This will require a lifetime to complete, gradually changing into the image of of Christ. This will require a daily process of spiritual renewal. This will require us to press on to attain everything Christ desires for us. This will require you to do what is right. This will require you to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable to the Lord. This will require you to put to death the misdeeds of the body. This will require you to strive for holiness. This will require you to flee immorality. This will require you to cleanse yourself from every defilement. This will require you to make every effort to supplement your faith. How are you to work out your own salvation? Paul tells us with fear and trembling. Fear is the word in Greek, phobos. It's where we get the idea of phobia from. But yeah, it means uh, admiration, astonishment, reverence, wonder, respect, veneration, worship of Almighty God. That is to be our disposition as we work out our own salvation and with trembling. Because to live out one own salvation, we do so in full view of the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a weighty matter to be sure. 
for those of us who in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Philippians have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in this life. That's your role in sanctification. Friends, if sanctification was left only to you, you would certainly fail. What is God's role in sanctification? And here comes sweet relief. Because our text tells us that God is working in you if you are a believer. Verse 13, for it is God who's working in you. <laughs> it doesn't get much clearer than that. God commands us to be holy all over the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We're to be holy. God's holiness means that he is separate from his creation and that he is separated from sin. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, it says, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Be holy. That's a command to be holy because this is the reason why you are to be holy. I, the Lord your God, am holy. The reason given to the Old Testament saints to be holy before God is that God himself is holy. Switch to the New Testament. Matthew chapter five, verse 48, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, that's the command. What's the reason? Why are we to be perfect? Because God is perfect. Now, even as you hear that command, you should be a little bit unsettled. Because friends, we are unable <laughs> to be holy. We're just unable to be holy. The command to be holy presents us with an impossible problem. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 to 35 says this, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is known by its fruit brood of vipers jesus says how can you speak good things when you are evil for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart a good person produces good things from his storeroom of good and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I mean, this text is saying so much in Matthew chapter 12, but one of the things that it's saying is that you don't have an outside problem in terms of sin. You're not sinful because of your environment. You have an inside problem. Your mouth speaks from an overflow of your heart. Something else that this text shows us is you don't actually have a behavior problem. You have a nature problem. Not only that, your problem isn't just the sins that you commit. The problem is that you are a sinner by nature. God commands us to be holy, but we by nature are unable to be holy. But God, praise his name, promised that we would be enabled. He does that in many places, but one of the clearest examples is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. 
we read in verse 6 that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. Then you will again obey him and follow all his commands I am commanding you today. God promised his people that they would be enabled to be holy. A circumcised heart means a cut heart, a separated heart, a set-apart heart. Israel's hope was that God would circumcise their hearts. God would cut them. God would separate them. God would set them apart. And this would change their affections. This would change the things that they love. And this would result in changed actions. As God set them apart, as they had new affections, it would result in new actions. God commands us to be holy. We are unable to be holy by ourselves. God promised that we would be enabled, and God himself enables us. Praise the Lord. Um, The book of uh, Ezekiel, chapter 36. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes carefully and observe my ordinances. Friends, God within us changing our affections, which change our actions. God didn't just promise that we would be holy. God enables us to be holy. So as we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, something that we must do, and something as we think about it, and think about it in light of the lordship of Jesus Christ, we tremble and we have a certain amount of fear. God takes it away and says, I will be within you. I will make this happen. For it is God who is working in you. How? How is God working in you? believer, both to will and to work, both to will and to work, Uh, will, this is more than a a change of outward conduct, Uh, this is more than than painting, whitewashing a, a, a tomb that still has a stinking rotten corpse in the middle, rather this is a deep penetrating work of the Holy Spirit right to the core of our beings. This is change from the inside out. God has predestined and commanded us to be transformed. There is no conflict between God's sovereign will, which he will certainly accomplish, and his moral will for us, which we are to pursue. We are to have a holy discontent. And this will require a lifetime to complete to be more like Jesus. This will require a daily process of spiritual renewal so we can lean on God. This will require us to press on to attain everything that Jesus Christ desires for us because it is his desire. This will require us to do what is right. 
This will require us to control our bodies in a way that is holy and honorable, set apart from this world. This will require us to put to death the misdeeds of the body. This will require us to strive for holiness. This will require us to flee from immorality. This will require us to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. This will require every effort to supplement our faith. How is God working in you? He's transforming your affections from the inside out giving us new affections, new delights to glorify him with lives that are set apart to his glory. Secondly, God transforms our actions. He transforms our actions. This is duty to the work, both to will and to work. Transformation, friends, is the work of the Holy Spirit. In the very core of our being, In the only two instances in Scripture where the word transformed is used, both times it occurs with the passive voice. We are being transformed, and we are to be transformed. We are the object. We are not the agent uh, of transformation. This is something which God does in us. It is true to say that God saved us in the past. He justified us as a once-for-all positional holiness to Christ. It is true to say that in the future, God will truly save us, perfectly and permanently glorifying us for all eternity. But it is true to say that in the present, God guides us to maturity. This is to be a practical, progressive holiness. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a portion just before our scripture reading this evening. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, and yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Why does God do this? According to his good purpose. God is good, and it is a reflection of his goodness that he would work in us toward holiness. And it is a reflection of his goodness that he would call on us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Two very brief applications of this evening's message from Philippians chapter 2. Verse 13 and 14. Firstly, to the unbeliever. Friend, don't listen to this message and walk out the door thinking that you have been called to be a good person. The whole point of this message was to tell you that you can't in and of yourselves. This message is not to you. This message is to believers who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who God is working within To you, you need to hear another message. And it comes from Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. You must submit. You must bow before the person of Jesus Christ. You must confess that Jesus is Lord. You must, else all your efforts of self-righteousness are just dirty and filthy rags before God. You stand before him in your own sin. 
You have not been sanctified in the past. You cannot sanctify yourself in the present, and you will not be sanctified in the future. On the day of judgment, you will stand before God without a hope in hell. Cast yourself now upon the person of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins and he rose from the grave. And his call on your life, even this evening, is to repent from your sins and put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And you will live this life. A holy life. A life which glorifies Jesus Christ forever and ever. You must do this personally and at once. You must be born again. You must receive the Spirit of God within you. Do not go to bed tonight without doing business with God. You have put yourself in grave peril. Be perfect, even as God is perfect. Be holy, even as God is holy. You cannot do it in your self-effort. You need Jesus Christ, his righteousness for your unrighteousness, his perfections for your sin. There's an application here for believers, and obviously the the passage is aimed at believers. The application um, is quite clear. Friends, you are to work out your own salvation. In light of everything that we have covered this weekend, in light of the reality of the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, in light of the truth that you have God within you, you are to live out your life in progressive sanctification. Expect progress, not perfection. Because God's not done with you yet. Glorification comes later. But in this life, we are to be sanctified from one degree of glory to the next. Amen? Let's close in a word of prayer. Well, Father, this is an impossible task. Impossible. With man, these things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so this evening, Lord God, I hand us as a people over to you. You command us to be holy. You require us to be holy. You have promised that we will be holy. Lord God, make us holy. Help us, Lord God, even in our weaknesses and infirmities, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, that we might live lives to your praise and to your glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.